0: Films like Easy Rider, American Graffiti, and Badlands are just a few examples of movies that reflected many Americans' disillusionment and glorification of the open road as a way to take back control of societal changes in the 1970s. Hi, I'm Shannon Rice, the podcast producer here at C SPAN, and this week's Lectures in History focuses on 1970s car culture and films of that era. University of Dayton professors John Heitman and Todd Ullman teach the class. And they talk about the impact of oil shortages, the rise of coast-to-coast races called cannonball runs, and the popularity of trucker movies and music. Stay tuned. Class starts right after this.
1: Well, today we're going to be talking about making sense of us or the United States in this period of the 1970s. And we're going to use three handles. Uh, We're going to use vehicles. We're going to use film and we're going to use the crises of the 70s to weave this all together and somehow come up with some sort of an understanding about changes in identity during this tumultuous decade. Before I begin, my co-host, Dr. Todd Ullman, uh, uh, Indiana and Rutgers PhD, uh, and an American Studies professor. He and I uh, ended up uh, writing an article in uh, 2014 in the Journal of Popular Culture entitled Stealing Freedom, which dealt with uh, film and auto theft. And I think the class read that as part of your assignment. Uh, And Todd has done many other different kinds of uh, studies during the past several years here at the University of Dayton. And my colleague John
2: Heitman, of course, is a very well-known historian of automobile history and others. He wrote a very famous book that won many awards. I'm plugging it for him here, The Automobile and American Life. Very good read, wonderful book. Uh, John has won uh, the most uh, distinguished historian in the state of Ohio award. And uh, he also won the award for best book, this book here, by the uh, pop culture, American Pop Culture Association in, uh, what was that, 2017, John? 2010. 2010. Goes way back. It goes way back. 20, goes way back. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, currently, Dr. Heitman is a professor emeritus, and uh, he's been kind enough to come here today to talk with me so that we can talk to you
1: about the 1970s. And that book is a great present for your parents <laughs> or your father if he's interested in cars. Uh, so see me after class, and uh, I'll try to sell you a bit more on that book. <laughs> but anyway, this is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, a- and uh, we are going to have vehicles and what we might want to call automobility uh, uh, in, uh, at the center, or at least one of the big major handles of our talk today— Uh, I don't know how many of you know much about automotive history. I doubt many of you uh, do. Uh, In 1990, uh, some MIT uh, uh, scholars wrote a book called The Machine That Changed the World. Uh, And it was a machine that changed the world, particularly in the 20th century, but even to this day. Uh, When I start off my course on the automobile in American life, I always mention this notion of that the automobile was European by birth and that most of those early innovations were German and then to a degree promoted by the French, but American by adoption. Uh, and no other country adopted the automobile uh, as a technology and essentially made decisions, personal decisions, collective decisions uh, to adopt and to uh, use and embrace the automobile the way Americans have. Uh, I'm only going to read one thing from the book today, but it's an important paragraph and I wanted to read it uh, to give you a sense of the importance of the automobile to this story and to any 20th century American uh, history. It is difficult to overestimate the significance of the automobile uh, to 20th century American history. The automobile and its related infrastructure transformed everyday life as well as our basic values. From top to bottom in American society, it created wealth and jobs. It played a crucial role in transforming Americans from producers of a limited number of goods, mostly farmers actually is what we were, to mass production manufacturers and consumers living in a machine age. It influenced, among other things, the nature and structure of the communities we live in, how we define and value community, and the architectural styles of our homes and other living spaces. Over the course of the 20th century, the car whetted our appetite for new things, conveying status and personal attractiveness, petroleum-based energy sources, engaging action movies, which we're going to talk about today, primal rock and roll, music, uh, and uh, high-fat fast food, which I will probably partake after this class is over. Uh, It's an industry uh, that uh, had its roots in the first decade of the 20th century in the United States, uh, matured, and really was stagnant by the 1960s, particularly technologically stagnant. Uh, The real uh, new ideas in automotive technology came from Germany and Japan. And this is a German VW, not the Beetle you're typically used to seeing from that era. But it was actually a new uh, vehicle, the Dasher, uh, in 1974 introduced. Uh, But the point is, is the American automobile industry had lost a lot of steam creatively uh, uh, over uh, the last few decades around the 60s and the 70s.
2: Now, with film, film's a kind of parallel to the automobile industry and its importance in American society. Uh, it's a modern technology, not invented by Americans, although Edison claimed to have invented it. Uh, the film was defined mostly by European-made productions in the early part of the 20th century, as, as you guys have all learned in this class. But Americans accepted film and adopted film, to use John's phrase, uh, in a way that no other people did. And that's why I've placed at the top of here the trick that altered reality. If If cars were the machine that changed the world, then film was a trick that altered reality. Because, of course, you guys know that film is a trick. It's not a moving thing. It's a bunch of still shots which spun together makes people believe that they're actually watching something shift and change, when in fact, nothing is changing. So it's a trick that can very much influence the, the imagination of the individual. And film, in this sense, like the automobile, was about ready to change the world. Now, the irony here is that the film industry had been in decline since the end of World War II, as you can see by the chart in the back here, the number of people visiting, uh, going to see f- uh, films had dramatically dropped in the post-war era. And we had reached, by the time we arrive at this juncture of the class and discussion, the 1960s, we had fundamentally reached the, the, the bottom of that well. And so unlike automobiles, and like automobiles, film was taking people on a journey. But here, the journey is not necessarily a place, except perhaps a place in their imagination.
1: Well, that third leg or handle in our lecture today centers on crises. Uh, And uh, it's vehicles, it's film, and it's crises. And it's crises from this decade of the 60s and the 70s, uh, particularly beginning around 1968 and then going all the way through 1979. And one of those really great films from the 70s, a film uh, of nostalgia and remarkable cinematography, is Badlands from 1973. Uh, it was in the 70s, and particularly we can pin it down to about the fall of, and, and winter of 1973-74, that the remarkable miracle economy after World War II and all the ruins that had taken place in Europe as a result of the bombing and the war and the combat, uh, Europe had recovered, the West had recovered, America had become now the global power that it was, and uh, it was a... Uh, country of enormous prosperity. Uh, But the post-war boom uh, was pending. Uh, We were uh, very wealthy in this country. In fact, there's a a, a historian from Yale by the name of David Potter who wrote a book in the 50s called People of Plenty. And we were people of plenty. Uh, But the Vietnam War, and and there were other matters as well that came to be, uh, all uh, uh, moved us to a point of reckoning beginning in 1973 related to that prosperity. And this, war, this uh, moment
2: really had brought about a fundamental change in American society that we all live with still today. Because the post-war era, the period roughly from 1945 to 1970, was one that historians like to refer to as the era of consensus. And we've talked about consensus, this idea of consensus in the class, It was the belief that America stood for a very small set of things. The future, progress, democracy. And that sense of consensus began to break down under the stressors that we're about ready to talk about. And out of it emerge a fundamental sociopolitical landscape very different
1: from the world of the post-war era. Well... At the heart of the American economy was the automobile industry. And it remains to some degree, it still is at the heart of the American economy. Uh, When our economy declined, beginning in 2008, 2009, uh, what picked us up uh, were car sales after 2010 again. Uh, And uh, uh, this is an interesting shot. It's a foreign car. It's, of course, a, a Volkswagen Beetle, and you all recognize it. Uh, uh, The industry was very fragile by 1973, and indeed beginning in 1968, in part because of rising imports uh, from Germany, like that Beetle, uh, from Japan, uh, uh, like the Honda Civic. And uh, uh, what would trigger uh, that fragility and cause it to totally fragment uh, was the issue of cheap oil and a gasoline shortage. Uh, Until 1973, sales uh, and profits in the auto industry remained relatively high. And so sometimes in history, uh, we don't see uh, uh, the clouds that are approaching us. And that was clearly true in Detroit uh, in in the spring of 1973. Uh, But there were uh, these difficulties that were uh, uh, kind of subterranean that would Uh, soon uh, emerge front and center. Uh, Among uh, the difficulties that uh, uh, the big three, General Motors, uh, the most significant valued company in this country, number one, Ford, number three, Chrysler, not even a name anymore, number five. Uh, And uh, uh, that was a totally unregulated industry until the 1960s. And when its autonomy uh, was compromised after the mid-1960s in terms of both safety and emissions, uh, that fragility really became uh, evident. So, in an interesting way,
2: the film industry, as we've already talked about, runs parallel to the history of the auto industry. It had bottomed out, In the 1960s, late 1960s and early 70s, it was beginning a new rise. And no film better represents that new rise than this film right here. Does anybody know what the name of this film is? Easy Rider. Easy Rider, that's right, 1969. Easy Rider represents the new uh, element of the film industry because it was an independent film production where the studios had begun to collapse. Uh, It was made for $400,000 and went on to make tens of millions. Also, it was directed by uh, uh, directors, uh, Dennis Hopper in this case, who had learned how to make films from the master of independent filmmaker, Roger Corman, a man who would have the important influence on Martin Scorsese, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, many, many, many others. Uh, This independent filmmaker was going to produce the new stage of American film. But it was film made for popular consumption. Film made not for art, but for entertainment and to make money. And much of that was dependent upon sensationalism. They didn't have the money to advertise the films, so what did they do? They simply took stories, ripped them from the headlines... And use the news in order to sell the movie. And that's where many of the films we're going to talk about today
1: come from. And there was a lot of music in that film. And I can remember the first cassette that I ever bought uh, was Steppenwolf. Uh, and Steppenwolf is featured uh, in Easy Rider. And so it's music and film coming together in a big way. Uh, and... Uh, you know, it's in the late 60s and the early 70s. All these young people are out and about and traveling. Uh, they're following Jack Kerouac's uh, admonition to get on the road, as his famous book from the 50s uh, kind of ex- implored us to do. Uh, and the question was is this a road trip? And all of you have probably taken road trips, or you're going to take road trips soon. Uh, it, it's a great experience. Is it a trip to nowhere uh, where really nothing much happens in the end that you can conclude? Or is it a trip where you have self discovery? Uh, or is it a trip where you discover about others? Okay. Uh, but in 1970, 71, the road trips in film were trips to nowhere and very much a part of that whole ethos of what and milieu of what the 70s, early 70s started out to be. Famous. Uh, uh, film, Tulane Blacktop. Famous only uh, uh, later on. Uh, It's one of those great films. It's a cult film now, uh, but in 71, it was a flop. It starred, among others, singer James Taylor here. Uh, We have uh, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. We have Lori Bird, who is a girlfriend of director Monty Hellman. And then we have the great Warren Oates. And one of the reasons why this becomes a cult film is because three of the four uh, die uh, rather mysterious deaths. Uh, Oates dies at age 53 of a heart attack. Wilson uh, dies in a uh, rather bizarre drowning. Laurie Bird ends up committing uh, suicide. But it's a road trip to nowhere with great film, film uh, uh, technique, uh, uh, there is no real dialogue amongst the characters, lots of frustration, uh, and, and facial tics uh, that sort of convey uh, uh, a, a sentiment or an idea on the part of the person uh, uh, it, it, that is being uh, centered on in the film. Uh, Two lane blacktop, maybe. Now, my favorite film from that same year, if I can go back, uh, well, we're having a little trouble, Well, there we go, uh, is actually Vanishing Point. And I don't know if any of you have seen Vanishing Point or not. Uh, I would sort of doubt it. Uh, uh, It is a great film, uh, a film of people at the margins of American society. Barry Newman is uh, uh, the driver uh, of a Dodge Challenger with supercharger in it. And his job is to drive back and forth from Denver to San Francisco, uh, essentially ferrying automobiles for people. Uh, And he's going to take this Dodge Challenger to San Francisco. He's just come back from San Francisco to Denver, has no time, get some drugs uh, back on the road. Uh, And of course, this is a world of outlaw speeds. Uh, This is a, world of defiance, uh, and uh, it's, a word of, it's a film of car chases, but it's much more than that. There are all these subtle meanings in here. As uh, uh, Kowalski is driving across country, uh, he uh, keeps on going back and mem- has memories of his past life, past life as a policeman, as a soldier, as a race driver as a motorcycle racer. Uh, And so he's living his life as he's on the road going 120 miles an hour, being chased, uh, never actually harming anyone as he's leaving them in the dust, although they often are in the ditches. Uh, And uh, as the police converge on him, uh, he has a savior, so to speak, in a, a blind Uh, disc jockey at uh, station K-O-W, cow, uh, in the desert, by the name of Super Soul, uh, who sees uh, Kowalski as a free spirit, as the last American hero, he calls him, as the last free American in a time of great uh, constraints. I got it, John. Got it? Uh, it ends in futility. Uh, the authorities block a road as he gets into California. He's almost made it. He's uh, gotten some uh, help from two hippies uh, uh, living in the desert, uh, uh, and uh, ultimately uh, he runs. In, he makes a decided uh, uh, moment. In a decided moment, he decides he will drive into these two uh, 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 these two earth movers. And that's the end of his life, another feudal cross-country drive. Uh, Here's the two-lane blacktop poster uh, with the stars that I just mentioned, Byrd, Taylor, uh, Oates, and Wilson. Uh, At the very same time that we're seeing this rebelliousness, we're seeing a flexing of muscles on the part of the government uh, related uh, to uh, what rights do you really have on the road? And it's right before the government will really uh, clamp down and uh, come up with a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit uh, that will take place after 1973 oil shock. Uh, John Volpe, DOT secretary, writes to auto enthusiasts and Motor Trend in 1971, so this is to the converted, so to speak, uh, and saying basically... Whenever you are on a public road, you uh, surrender your private life uh, and your autonomous rights uh, away. Uh, The roads belong to the state. The state state sets the standards uh, and how you can use those uh, roads. And uh, no matter what you think about individualism, uh, you are not uh, simply an individual in American society. Uh, If you have an accident, even if you're the only one hurt, it's going to cost the state money to take care of you. That's a pretty hard statement, I think, Uh, and uh, that was John Volpe, and that was really the the federal government at this time. Uh, So what happens after 1971 and this clamping down related to speed limits, we see Uh, a a series of coast-to-coast, no-holds-bar, unofficial outlaw races uh, uh, that are called the Cannonballs. Uh, And uh, uh, it's named after a man by the name of Cannonball Baker, who, beginning around uh, World War I and then on into the 30s, uh, kept on setting coast-to-coast records, driving first motorcycles and then cars. Uh, He had a rather significant career that included Indianapolis as well. Uh, and uh, Brock Yates, who was a journalist at Car and Driver, had watched two-lane Blacktop, and he came up with the idea, let's have uh, a race across country and see how fast we can go from New York to California. Okay. So then we begin to see this
2: transition, the way movies are establishing the way people act.
1: and very clear way in this, in this example. And so the first cannonball takes place in 1971. Now, the reason I'm mentioning cannonball now, we're going to kind of drop this for a minute and then come back, uh, is it will be the source of a good number of films uh, after 1975. Okay, And there will be cannonballs in 71, 72, 73, 75, uh, 79 will be the last official Cannonball uh, by Brock Yates. But to this day, if you look at YouTube, you will find there are people doing cannonballs to this day. Okay? And and how fast can you go from New York to LA? All right? Uh, 35 hours uh, is a pretty good time. Uh, I think I saw 33 or 32 now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, you know what that means? That means the Ohio State Patrol on I 70 aren't going to be very happy with you in in your Ferrari. Uh, Or maybe you're going to try to sneak through in an ambulance uh, or in a van uh, uh, or in a Cadillac. Or maybe you will do what some of the cannonballers would do. and You'd you'd go to Hertz Rent-A-Car and you'd rent a car for a week (laughs) and then drive the hell out of it and then uh, turn it in. Okay. Uh, And and this is the first. It's in New York uh, at a bar And the winner will be this Ferrari here uh, to the left. And it will be driven uh, by quite a significant American race car driver, Dan Gurney, uh, who is one of the great American uh, Formula One uh, race car drivers in history. He just recently died. And his co-pilot will be Brock Yates. Uh, But there'd be uh, uh, about eight cars involved in this. And uh, dozens of speeding tickets, including one of the entrants who got five speeding tickets in one town. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So 1973
2: was a significant year in the story, this bigger story we're telling you about the 1970s, because 1973 had two parts. It had the summer. And that summer part we'll see in film in a nostalgia of American life that was beginning to slip away. 73 was the year Vietnam was coming to an end and America had lost the war. But then in the fall or the winter of 73 was also the great first oil shock. And so we've come back to the image of Badlands here and in the sunset, the summer of nostalgia of this extraordinary year begins with American Graffiti and George Lucas's second film, which focuses on
1: this nostalgic past. How many of you have seen American Graffiti? One of you? Not many. All right. Uh, yeah, it, it is a coming-of-age film. Uh, it, it is actually uh, autobiographical of George Lucas uh, at various stages of his life, from about the eighth grade to high school. And the characters, the central characters, tend to be George Lucas at grade nine, grade, George Lucas at grade 11, George Lucas, at uh, grade 12, in Modesto, California, growing up in the valley, the center of car culture. Uh, and uh, it's supposed to take place in 1962. Uh, and uh, it, it's uh, about the end of an era, because Vietnam is just starting now. Uh, and actually, one of the central characters, well, let's go back here. Uh, uh, virtually in the early 1960s, Every community in America had something like Mel's Drive-In. There is a Mel's Drive-In in in San Francisco. I think I've been there. Uh, At least I I have in my mind Uh, whether I've actually been there. And I don't know. We'll see. We have to go back. This mind gets scrambled sometimes. Uh, But uh, my wife, Aiken, South Carolina, there was a frost stop. Uh, And all the kids from Aiken would go there on a Friday night. Uh, And... uh, uh, this was the central kind of focal point of uh, this film. One night, the last night, between two of the central characters, uh, Ronnie Howard and Richard Dreyfuss, will end up, uh, planned, they're planned anyway, to go to, on a plane to the East and to start college. And it's supposed to be this last night. Uh, and uh, it's about cars. It's about romance, Uh, And there's a tinge of sadness in it because this character here, Toad, who's the nerd, you know, he never has a girlfriend. He's always awkward. He's always stumbling. Uh, He will uh, end up being the character in the postscript where you see where these characters go. According to Lucas, Uh, it's Toad who dies in Vietnam. Uh, Another central character. And there's a, 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 there's a drag race at the end involving Harrison Ford and, and uh, this character, John Milner. Uh, but Milner is the greaser. Milner uh, is the guy who never goes anywhere. He doesn't go to college. Uh, he's just going to work around the garage. Uh, but uh, it goes to show you that sometimes people who have the least amount of education have the most sensitivity of the world around them and what's changing. And he does. Uh, He cannot really fathom the changes that are taking place in the early 1960s. He can't really understand what is happening in 1962. The whole strip is shrinking. Uh, That's the strip where the folks are doing the cruise ends and and doing the cruises on a Friday night. Uh, It's during that cruise that uh, a a 16-year-old girl gets into his car, he's totally embarrassed, uh, he tries to hide as he's driving on during the cruise, uh, and uh, but they end up going to a junkyard, and there's some very poignant dialogue, uh, uh, but he understands that the world is changing in a way that he doesn't like. Uh, postscript, uh, this character will end up dying in a drag race, uh, and so another tinge of sadness. Uh, but uh, it's this film that marks the obsession during the 1970s uh, 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 of the nostalgia of a day uh, that was happy, uh, that was uh, still a part of American memory. Somehow, uh, America was great back then.
2: It'll be the spinoff. Uh, at this show, of course, this movie generates happy days the sitcom of the 1970s, and then it has multiple spinoffs as well. So George Lucas was really... Uh, his, uh, he and Coppola, who worked with him very closely, understood that America, Americans at this time wanted to go to movies marked by nostalgia. Many people, as you guys have learned, many people don't think Star Wars is a nostalgic film. They think of it as science fiction, but in fact... It's a very much nostalgic film. And they become, that's the biggest, they're the biggest conveyors of nostalgia, of this lost time. So the key thing that happens here is the oil shock, which really brings about the winter of 1970. It comes at the winter. The oil shock is caused by a series of global crisis uh, involving uh, U.S. support for Israel. And what it does is it drives... Uh, A moment in American history when gas prices dramatically rise, as we can see right here with this chart. You can see the price. It seems not too bad to us. And then one response is Richard Nixon passes a a plan to conserve energy by lowering the the driving speed on the highways uh, and rationing gas. And this is exactly the moment, too, when inflation starts to rise and the post-war economic expansion begins to die, to wither. That's
1: right.
2: The result is a crisis, and that crisis explodes on American society in in December of 1973 when truckers who rely upon cheap gas, cheap diesel to drive across country and deliver all the consumer goods that Americans are using, suddenly, spontaneously, without plan, protest. One, one of the truckers ran out of gas on the Pennsylvania turnpike, and, 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 and instead of pulling off the road, he spontaneously decided to stop the truck right in the middle of the highway, producing a traffic jam, and then he told everybody else, using a CB, about this, all the other truckers, and they stopped. And these truckers then produced the first outcry against American uh, the changes taking place in America. and we can see here this is from the Akron Beacon, a newspaper talking about the uh, the truckers, and now here you see one being arrested and you can see these are what comments that people wrote in about the truckers and If you analyze these comments, what you see is that people are really Supporting truckers because they think the truckers represent them in terms of their rejection of corporate capitalism, as you see here, oil companies. Or they think that they're against the corrupt government. Watergate is at the moment of completely breaking out right now. A year from this moment, Richard Nixon would leave office. And then rationing, which is on its way. It will happen in a few days, and you would have 55 and that's tyranny. Many people see that as the tyranny of government intervening in their lives. And finally, that the government had been lying to them
1: about Vietnam. And this was becoming clear now that the war was lost. And now the government is taxing uh, uh, cars with high fuel consumption, called the gas guzzler tax. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the government is now setting standards for mileage on uh, new cars, and so tell, is telling the American auto industry how to design cars. They had already done that earlier uh, in terms of safety and emissions. Now it is in terms of fuel consumption. And here we
2: see uh, the the polling that was done by the Akron Beacon uh, showing that 69% of people sided with the truckers, even though it was inconveniencing them. In December. So, how did this happen? How did the trucker become a symbol of American unhappiness, a symbol of rebellion in American society? And to tell you that story, I have to go back and explain the origins of the trucking industry. So, the trucking industry was growing rapidly at this time. Um, the vision was created back in 1935 during the Great Depression, in which there was long distance trucking, uh, and it was controlled by large corporations and run by unions, the Teamsters. On the other side, there was the non-regulated trucking, which was called rural trucking, exception. And this was mostly farmers moving agricultural goods to market. Now, the Interstate Highway Commission was created in order to regulate the regulated market and uh, the corporate. But uh, r- roughly around 1960s, corporations like Iowa Beefpacking, began to use unregulated truckers in order to avoid the expense of the corporate trucking. And as they did so, more and more uh, goods were shifted to the unregulated side of the market. And this is how they were producing cheaper beef and bringing it to the market. But at the same time, they were generating a, a whole new type of culture as truckers, as the rural truckers began to expand. Who were these rural truckers? Many of them were farmers who had been run out of business by corporate, corporatized farmers, corporate, corporate farming, agro-business. And they had moved to trucking because that was one area that they, could, they understood. As they did so, they created an entire subculture based on honky-tonks, truck stops, radio communication, and, and eventually an entire version or form of country music, a subgenre called trucking. Trucker music.
1: Now, just to go back a second. Yeah. uh, Just for a point of humor more than anything. In all the truck stops I've ever been, I've never seen good-looking folks like this uh, (laughs) by the trucks. Of course, they seem. You talk about reality, and uh, uh, it doesn't seem that way. Yeah. Uh, But, I mean, I just wanted to make that comment. Uh, Now, both of those, of course, these are
2: uh, covers for trucker specific trucker music albums, which becomes a major area. Now, this is from a 1966 uh, 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 comic book featuring truckers. The independent trucker subculture emphasized several key things. It emphasized the notion of independence, individual men feeling like they controlled their own businesses. And we see this in this idea of the independent, so the, so the independent man was both a traditional concept, but also a modern concept, because they were driving these incredible machines, these modern trucks. Simultaneously, this traditional man was also a rebel, because he could stay out as long as he wanted on the road, he could meet many women as he drove around, those uh, unimagined women in the front of the cover of those, uh, of those albums, and... But nevertheless, they represented also a kind of real man patriarchy. Now, the ideal of this was the owner-operator, the the man who actually owned his own truck. This was very unusual in the industry, but they were the ideal. So truckers began to become popular for this reason, to bring it back to the reason we're talking about this. On one hand, they had a, a job that was respectable, And at the same time, it was sexy. Men could begin to imagine a society in which they were rebels and at the same time respectable. And it was exclusive. As well as, at this moment, rebellious against the government. As we see this image from the 55 being turned into a swastika, which comes from a trucker magazine at this time. And we have images like this. The trucker magazine I'm referring to is Overdrive Magazine, and, uh, which, which begins to place the trucker as a kind of symbol for Americans. But there's one other thing here, too.
1: Well, yeah, it's during the 1970s that we do see a rise in the significance of the South in terms of American discussions about who we are. Uh, in part, it's because as our economy is slowing down, uh, we're starting to see the migration uh, from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt. And so you're starting to see the emergence of Charlotte and Atlanta as really significant American urban areas. Uh, and, and Southern culture is being now celebrated uh, in terms of its individualism. I mentioned in Vanishing Point uh, the label that was given Kowalski, the last American hero. And... and uh, 1974. There is a film called The Last American Hero, and it's about Junior Johnson uh, and uh, about NASCAR. And what is he doing? Of course, he's running liquor and trying to avoid uh, uh, the federal a- f- federal agents, and ends up going to prison, as does his father. Uh, and but the values uh, are that of rugged individualism. Uh, don't tread on uh, me. And it's this notion of the pre-industrial South, particularly tied into country music, which explodes at this time. Country music was uh,
2: really not a genre of music for, for for much for a long time, and in the late in the '60s it begins to rise, and in the '70s it explodes. And trucking music was one subgenre of country music. So here is another dimension of this, which adds to the
1: sense of rebelliousness of the trucker, right? Uh, And and it's the tools the trucker would use and what the cannonball folks would use to somehow uh, avoid getting tickets and being stopped by the police. Uh, We see the emergence of the radar detector, and some of you probably have a radar detector, or your parents have a radar detector. Uh, This is uh, one of the first uh, from the early 1960s, uh, but actually uh, what few folks know is that the radar detector uh, as a sophisticated device really came to be first here in Dayton, Ohio uh, for someone who worked at the Air Force Base and who got a ticket one day and decided to develop uh, a, a radar detector called the Fuzzbuster. And to this day, uh, that migration then took place to Cincinnati, and now you have Cincinnati Microwave, uh, and uh, it would be the, those folks who would Uh, uh, appear at the cannonballs before the cannonballs would start selling their tools. And then the other was this origin before the cell phone uh, of uh, the nationwide warning system. Uh, And and that was the CB radio uh, that had just been uh, kind of made available to to, uh, the population uh, via the FCC. And so it's Smokey and the Bandit. uh, and, And it's the CB Uh, And uh, yeah, we see uh, here the right. And it's music again with Jerry Reed. Jerry Reed was in Vanishing Point. He had a song there. He'll have a number of songs later on in the 70s. Very important. But here he's hawking Whistler radar eye uh, uh, detectors. Uh, And to this day, if you're a cannonballer, you're going to have a CB. You're going to have your uh, phone and uh, you'll have uh, uh, software tools there. Uh, you'll have a radar detector. And you'll have somebody with the binoculars uh, looking in both directions trying to s- see if you can find someone on uh, uh, the side of the road or, uh, or wherever. Anyway, so then what we see here is you can begin to understand why
2: the trucker actually becomes a symbol of rebellion against what was increasingly seen as the tyranny of the modern state, which is being blamed for this moment in American history when the American dream seemingly was slipping away. Ironically, of course, as we just learned, that things like the CB, like the uh, uh, radar detectors, were invented by the military-industrial complex, in other words, the federal government. However, and the roads that people were driving on were built by the federal government. All of this indicates the way that there's a kind of counterintuitive sense about the way Americans are rebelling against the society. One way we see this is in films, that after the trucking protests of 1973, what we have is the explosion of trucker movies. And trucker movies are captured, captured this rebelliousness. White Lion Fever was one of the first ones in 1975. And, uh, it, the the trucker film is focused on the working man and how unhappy the working man feels about the society. As these posters begin to indicate, it's trucks, it's girls, it's guns. Yes, trucks, girls, and guns. That's right. Yeah, th- that 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 are selling, and it, so it's it's aimed at a particular constituency, particularly white males, who are increasingly unhappy with the way the society seemingly, because it, it's, it's important to see here that 1975 or 1973 is about the time when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 65 actually begins to be enforced so that women could compete with for men's jobs, okay? And many men were very unhappy about this. The exclusive right that they had once had to access to good-paying jobs where now they were having to share with women and they were having to share with minorities. And so what we see is the films which reflect this rebelliousness. Now, just to give you an idea subject-wise, here we have uh, James Brolin uh, playing a trucker in 1976 in, uh, in in the film Steel Cowboys. His truck is called Outlaw. Okay? And... His wife has left him for a fruit burger professor. I think that means me. (laughs) And at the same time, he's he's got a repossession man coming to his house driving a VW. And third, he has a corporate trucking company breathing down his neck to take away his job, to put him into a uniform. And of course, the owner of that company is called Pincus. Highly suggestive. And he says to him, to Brolin's character, I, I know you're a big man. I know what you got under the belt. All of this is suggestive of the way that the film is, is aiming at those frustrated by the ICC, Interstate Commerce Commission, that was forcing the rules, or corporations. And at the end of the film, Clay goes crazy and smashing the furniture in his house, screams, I'm a man! before driving his truck into Pincus' home in a hail of bullets,
1: committing suicide. Back to cars. Uh, And back to Cannonball. So we want to reconnect with my comments on Cannonball. We're going to leave trucks behind for a few minutes. Uh, And uh, this is the ultimate end of the Cannonball uh, films. Uh, And it stars David Carradine, who actually... Uh, it was the star in the first Cannonball film in 1975, uh, uh, entitled uh, Cannonball. So this Death Race 2000. Yeah, yeah Death Race uh, 2000 and, uh, leads into what John's
2: talking about with Cannonball, because Death Race 2000 uh, was Roger Corman production, and uh, it involves this kind of sense of
1: violence through vehicles. So then, the yeah, same Cannonball. year... We have Cannonball, which is the first of the Cannonball films. Uh, it infuri- this film infuriated Brock Yates at Car and Driver because he thought somehow Cannonball was his idea and almost could be his property, all right? And now all of a sudden in Hollywood, some crumb comes up with a, a B-grade or even C-grade movie uh, and starring Carradine, and it's not much of a film... Uh, But in uh, April of 1975, with the speed limit set at 55, uh, Yates sends out a call uh, for uh, essentially entrance for a 1975 cannonball. Uh, There is a race. And Hollywood quickly follows after the Carradine film uh, with my favorite, actually, But first we have to get to some other. Yeah, these are a little montage of the kind of film posters of these of these topics. Uh, And I I think what I I really wanted to make a point of in the nineteen sixties there were two really important films related to how automobiles are actually used in a film. One was a film called Grand Prix starring James Garner. But then the other is a film that some of you may have seen and all of you in my auto history class would see, and that's Bullet. Uh, starring Steve McQueen, okay? And it's because of the nature of the filming, uh, the use of cameras inside the vehicle, uh, the use of cameras outside of the vehicle in chase scenes, uh, and the chase scene uh, itself. And so in the 70s, there is this flowering uh, of car films. I'm going to call it car exploitation. Uh, But there are so many of them uh, involving everything from uh, uh, kind of Uh, uh, very independent films like Gone in 60 Seconds to some of Ronnie Howard's first films uh, uh, as well in the later 70s. And they're everywhere. And I should say, John, too, is that Ron Howard,
2: of course, was in Greece. uh, Not in Greece, but in... uh, American Graffiti. American
1: Graffiti, one of the central characters. And he was Roger Corman's. He was a protege of Roger Corman. right. My favorite of all the cannonball films is Gumball Rally. Uh, It's a coast-to-coast race uh, made for film uh, in which the prize is one thing. To get all those speeding tickets, it's a gumball. (laughs) That's it, all right? Uh, And uh, you have women involved. Uh, uh, My favorite, uh, pair of women. And I have a car like that, except without the whale tail. Uh, And uh, that's a Porsche 911, an early one, probably about a 74, 75. Uh, and uh, uh, one of those women will uh, tell one of those aggressive male types, if you can catch me, you can have me, all right? Uh, But at any rate, uh, so there's this issue of gender negotiation there. But this is a remarkably fine film. Uh, I really like it. Uh, It involves uh, a a number of interesting characters. Uh, The winners are in a cobra. Uh, This fellow... Uh, on the left in the Cobra is an assistant professor at Harvard who gets a call to get involved in this event and is afraid to get involved because he thinks it might cost him his tenure, all right? Uh, And if you see his facial image at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, two very different figures. It's like the race transformed him, all right? Uh, In the background is an Italian driver driving a... Uh, Ferrari, why he's lagging behind is because these two characters up front had already kind of connived to have a very good looking woman standing by the side of the road back there, uh, appealing to the Italian driver so he would stop for a while. Uh, And uh, and another interesting kind of uh, uh, male-female gender negotiation. So, so yeah, if if I could comment on that, John, that... What we have here
2: is that these films, in our effect, in this moment when gender and masculinity, particularly in, whether because of women's liberation and uh, men's increasing pressure, f- particularly white males feeling uh, that the world is getting away from them, these kind of films both celebrate masculinity for those white males, but simultaneously we see an attempt to negotiate the, the, the conflict so that Women's liberation can be partially expressed and accepted, and then partially the women could be—they continue to be used as sexualized objects in these films.
1: So this is strange negotiation that's happening in the pop film. Now we'd be remiss not to mention uh, that cataclysmic event of Watergate and Nixon and his resignation and. Uh, In August of 1974, his vice president convicted of tax evasion Uh, the winter before. uh, We are told to turn down our thermostats to 60 degrees because of energy conservation uh, and and walking around freezing in our homes uh, during this period of time. If you could get fuel oil and if you were living in the northeast, that could be a real problem. Here is the greatest power on Earth. uh, And uh, we are uh, uh, suffering uh, in, in many ways, uh, in terms of inconveniences, but also political st- stability and inflation. All of a sudden, the price of everything is rocketing up. We call it stag flag, uh, uh, inflation. stagflation in this land of opportunity. And can you trust the government? Well, the truckers already have decided they don't trust the government, but then most Americans don't trust the government. And that is true to this very day. And we see here exactly how that
2: evolved. One of the remarkable things is in the post-war era is how much government was actually trusted. As you can see right here, in 1964, a little over 75% of Americans identified the federal government as the most trustworthy institution in the United States. That makes sense because... The, the New Deal had brought them prosperity. The, the, the government had taken them through the war. Now they had Social Security. There was a lot of very positive things. But these events, we see the red lines here that John's pointing to, these events begin to erode that confidence. Vietnam, water, 25%. Down to 25%. And today we would probably be happy if it was 25%. Right? So... This is the moment when this problem with the distrust of government begins to happen. And this is partially, pardon the pun, fueling the films that we're watching,
1: the films that we're talking about. Now, lest we end on a rosy note, in 1979, there'd be a second oil shock, and it would be even far more severe than the first, uh, with inordinate consequences. Industrial analyst Martin Anderson would write from MIT in uh, 1980, uh, particularly related to the auto industry, the largest shift in technological, human, and capital resources in U.S. industrial history. And so it should be no surprise that by the late 1980s, as a result of this shift, uh, cities like Dayton, Flint, uh, the great GM cities, uh, end up, Becoming barren and starting to shut down uh, as a result of oil shock, too. It was a result of what happened in Iran. A friend of the United States, the Shah, uh, who had supported the United States with, uh, uh, with uh, oil, uh, excess oil production during those lean months in 1973, 74, 75, uh, he ran a corrupt government. Uh, he flees Iran. And that starts a revolution, a revolution where American hostages are held. Uh, an American uh, uh, government, a uh, uh, military force can't get those hostages out. Another ignominious uh, episode. And again, we have no gas. Uh, and inflation again. And I can remember in 1979, I was living on the East Coast uh, and I needed fuel oil And the question was, would I get any fuel oil as my tank was reading about E? And would we just freeze to no end? Uh, Big three. Ford, General Motors, Chrysler, deficits. Chrysler becomes bankrupt uh, in in 1980. Uh, Job losses follow. Uh, It's the end uh, of a world in some ways, particularly in the industrial Northeast.
2: Now, Of course, truckers reacted to this much like they had in 1973. Indeed, the independent truckers had now grown in numbers because of the industrial uh, trends that I was talking about before. And what we have is a huge strike by independents in 1979, 75,000 independents. The Teamsters, the largest union of truckers, does not join them in this strike. Nonetheless, it produces a very significant conflict. That that fact that the Teamsters, the union, doesn't join them. The the image of the outlaw trucker that we had seen in these films we've been talking about, that image had now penetrated the the subculture of truckers, who now saw themselves increasingly as outlaws, who saw themselves as uh, rebels fighting against a tyrannical state. And these truckers became violent, like the films did. They dropped rocks from overpasses. They used CB radios to issue threats. And altogether, in 18 states, hundreds of instances of snipers shooting at truckers still on the road. One man died. Now, this, the trucking film at this point had created a conundrum, though, how was an independent man going to stand up in collective movement against the federal state? This was against the idea of independent manhood. To unionize, unions were being demonized. So how could that be? So the out, the answer was the growth of the anarchical suicide that we saw earlier in white line fever. But this also was a downer. So another solution to the problem was... A convoy as a spontaneous democratic rebellion against the
1: federal government, against the police. And you've all been on interstates where you see two trucks blocking uh, both lanes. And they're just making a statement for a minute sometimes. Yes. But it's there. And that's kind of a mini convoy type story. Uh, And so there's a great uh, film, a great song. uh, And... uh, uh, yeah, a- a- and uh, 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 an interesting time uh, on the road. Yeah,
2: Convoy um, is the film, is the song that we're talking about. Convoy happened in 1976 and uh, becomes a huge hit, which then leads to the film. But, but really, if we were to talk about it, right, John, if there, it, there's no film that better indicates this. It's not con- if there's one in the film that d- better indicates this process,
1: it is Smokey and the Bandit. It, it, it vaulted Burt Reynolds to the highest level in Hollywood, uh, and that car, that Firebird, is the great iconic car of the 1970s. Uh, there is so if you go to a Pontiac car meet, that's what you want to see: the, that fire, Trans Am Firebird uh, with that uh, artwork on it. Uh, now, if you and look at the franchise that follows. Yeah.
2: I mean, if you look at this, I mean, what you see is that Smoking the Bandit costs $4.3 million to make. Uh, today's adjusted inflation dollars, it has made over $521 million. The The entire franchise, as we now call it, made three quarters of a billion dollars. To be clear here, Smoking the Bandit was the second gross, highest grossing film of 1977. I think you could probably guess what the highest grossing film of 1977 was. Star Wars. Star Wars, okay. So this is to give you an indication of just how big this film is and what. Look
1: very carefully. Here is a southern Dixie flag.
2: Right. So what we're seeing here is, just as John's pointing out, is the merging of the filmic vision of rebellion with not only regionalism,
1: the South, but also an emergent new political culture. Well, the cannonball films, Beyond Gumball Rally, uh, Cannonball, Cannonball Run, 1981. uh, uh, More stars uh, in one film that I can ever think of. Uh, Reynolds, Roger Moore, Farrah Fawcett, Dom DeLuise, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Jamie Farr, Terry Bradshaw, if uh, you watch uh, uh, the football pregame programs, Uh, Mel Tillis. Uh, they were all there. A great gross film uh, in terms of amount of money made. Uh, one of the worst films ever. Uh, I would almost suggest you don't watch it if you are looking <laughs> at films that we have kind of covered in class today. Uh, it will disappoint to no end. Uh, it is terrible. Uh, there are some uh, elements of race and nationalism in this film. We have some a Japanese team of incompetence uh, uh, who are driving a Subaru uh, and... and Uh, are uh, frustrated uh, uh, during the race. And then there is Jamie Farr as an Arab sheik, uh, who uh, another uh, stereotype uh, uh, with uh, some minions in this film as well. Cannonball Run, 1981. And then others would follow uh, uh, all the way up to Death Race, if you really want to take that type of film forward. Now we've got to wrap up. Uh, And this is an image from Badlands. Uh, And uh, uh, it's this notion of what is reality and what is illusion and how does the reality uh, of uh, a thing called the automobile, uh, how is that transformed into an illusion in a way? And how does film uh, do that? And, uh, uh, you know, how does our identity uh, a- end up somehow twist in turn uh, related to the products from Hollywood? And how do we identify ourselves that way? I watch Gumball Rally. I get in my car and I drive like hell through Greene County. OK, uh, that's my identity coming through after being influenced by a film. Uh, rebellion. Uh, in terms of uh, substance uh, to this day. Uh, and what that suggests, I'll leave that to you, okay? Uh, and the politics of theater. Uh, and what does that mean? And I, I ask you to close us out, Dr. Holman, as we're on the last minute or so of our... So, yeah, this
2: politics, the Hollywoodification of America, at this moment when America, the post-war consensus has ended where America, uh, uh, the dream of the consumer republic, as one historian has referred to it, has now seemingly crashed and burned. At this moment, what is America going to be? Is it going to be an acceptance of a changed future? Will we move to a metric system, as Jimmy Carter would suggest in 1976? Or, and in, it in in places solar panels on top of the White House? And in, in the a vision of a new future, past petrochemicals, or, as what happens in 1980 when Ronald Reagan takes office, he takes off the, the, the panels right off the White House and says, let's continue as we were. There's nothing wrong with America. There's only bad people thinking bad things. Drill more for oil and dig more coal. So is this then, at this moment, do we begin to see the emergence of the theater of politics? where visions of American life have become to supplant actual American life, where people live more in the imagination of what America could be versus the reality of America. So we'll leave you with those thoughts, and we'll finish there. We have some questions,
1: perhaps, that we want to have about our talk yeah, I was going to talk a little bit about soft energy technologies that, and missed opportunities from the 70s. The fact that electric cars were studied for a time in the 1970s. In a big way, synthetic fuels were developed in the 1970s. Uh, but we never thought long term. Uh, and so uh, our crises of the 70s kept coming back to us uh, in uh, other ways, in uh, other times forward to this day. Yeah. So you guys have some questions for us about these, uh, this
2: topic? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, where would the film, it's a mad, mad, mad world,
0: and the uh, Hanna-Barbera cartoon Wacky Races fit into the Cannonball movies?
1: You know, I haven't seen the mad, mad, mad world. I know there's some resurgent interest in the film now. And apparently there's going to be another Mad, Mad, Mad World that's coming out. Uh, but I haven't seen it in so long, I can't give you a good answer uh, 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 for that. Well, the uh, Mad, Mad, Mad World is, in a sense, an ensemble film,
2: right? Where we have this, again, this race. Uh, and it, again, it's played for com- comic purposes. So, but the film really doesn't have the element of, of anger, the way we sometimes feel, even in a comedic film like Cannonball, there's, there's an anger. Now, the Mad Men world was this the 1960s, before all of these elements come together. So I think the film could be seen more as a, a, as a film that reflects Americans' exuberance of the car and the possibility of the car, whereas Cannonball and some of these other films are doing that, and at the same time they're expressing the anxiety that Americans are feeling. Because the car, one of the things that John's been telling us here, and tells us so well in his book, is that the car is the premier symbol of America. Once the horse, once the cowboy, could no longer be a, a, a modern example of America's and going off into the sunset on your horse, the car replaced that. And this is why we talk about the truckers as
1: steel cowboys, The the car is tied to our status, uh, whether you like it or not. And it also has its own tricky way, and that is it makes us feel more important than we really are. Because actually, we are not terribly important uh, for the most part. But inside that vehicle, we're the masters. So there's a sense
2: of, there's an illusion, a consumer-bought illusion. Well, it's driving and control. Driving and control. When you, if you can't have actual control working in a factory under a certain job conditions, working for a corporation, then at least you're in control when you're behind the wheel of the car. Unless, of course, the federal government or the state government or the police are watching how fast you ride. And if you see that, then you see why it becomes so important to rebel against 55. Do you guys have another question for us? Yeah. Yes, sir.
1: So, like, What were the, like, some of like, the lasting impacts in society due to the, like, the angry white male um, films that we kind of discussed?
2: Well, I mean, we talked a little bit about this notion of the angry, angry white male film, Films like Death Wish, Dirty Harry, right? And we've talked about this in class. Here we see a version of this, right? Or or other examples would be Walking Tall, right? Uh, Here we see a version of this kind of film, but it's not quite as explicit as as these other films are. We don't see Dirty Harry telling an African-American make my day in these films. What we see are... Largely white truck drivers who want to get rid of hippies on the road who are bothering them, uh, subservient police who are just doing what the what the state no, and was making not f-
1: making fools of police.
2: Yeah, making fools of yeah, police. I mean, there's no better example than than in, in, in Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, Jackie Gleason plays a, town, a sheriff who pursues the bandit. An absolute tremendous. It's it's. Honestly, it's the only reason to watch the movie. Gleason is absolutely spectacular. He's one of the funniest characters, in my opinion, in film, in this movie. Um, but, But in effect, what the audience is doing is laughing at authority. And so this idea that you're behind the wheel, that you're in control, is a substitute for real politics, you see? Because real politics had died... In
1: 1968, with the death of MLK and so Someone RFK. wonders what's going to happen when we go to autonomous cars, and that outlet of control yeah, and being a captain behind the wheel uh, no longer uh, is a privilege for us, uh, at least if the futurists have their way.
2: Right. Which, which John and I have talked about this, we and think that there's going to be a tremendous rebellion against the idea of the autonomous car, because people... They don't understand why they're doing it, but they don't want to give up the symbolic sense of control, which is now, in other words, democracy in a sense, in this sense, is reducible to a consumer purchase product. Right? The freedom of the road. The politics of democracy is increasingly threatened, as we well know today. Threatened because people are satisfied with the consumer ersatz version of freedom okay any other questions all right then well if no other questions thanks for coming guys thanks for coming and we
0: appreciate you being here thanks for listening to c-span's lectures in history podcast if you're interested in hearing more history check out season two of the presidential recordings podcast The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.